0: Looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need. With your host, Jeff Dwoskin.
1: All right. Thank you, Ned, for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week. And this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 100 of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Duoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. Glad to be back to celebrate 100 episodes with you. Can't thank you enough for coming back week after week. And here we are serving up episode 100. This episode contains 432 extra calories than a normal episode. But don't worry, you can go for a run after and work that right off. It's going to be totally worth it, I promise. Our guest for episode 100 is actor, singer, songwriter, Ronnie Cox. That's right, Ronnie Cox. You loved him in Total Recall as Ko Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 2, RoboCop, Star Trek the Next Generation and of course Deliverance and so much more. It's an amazing conversation with one of the greatest actors of all time. So many great stories. I can't wait for you to hear it and that's coming up in ju- what was anyway, sorry. And it's coming up in just a few minutes. This journey of 100 episodes has been so amazing. When I started the podcast, I had no idea that it would take me this far and I'd be able to meet so many cool people. It's really exciting. One of the cool things about the Ronnie Cox interview coming up is in December, I talked to Billy Van Zandt we did a whole TAPS retrospective for the 40th anniversary of TAPS. Ronnie Cox was in TAPS and so we talk about that and I get a little bit of it from Ronnie's point of view as well. So it's always cool to be able to talk to different people who are involved in the same project and get different points of view so that... What did you I'm sorry, there's like a noise and I can't I normally try and filter them all out. Anyway, so uh, I'm really excited. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast every week. I really appreciate it. I love hearing from you on Twitter and the DMs and the emails Means so much. I I'm sorry. Do you hear that? It's hang on. It sounds like it's coming from over here. Oh, my God, a party for me. All right, Jeff, you son of a bitch.
0: I'll see you at the party. <laughs> Arnie, this is the party. Who told you that? Cahagan? All right. Let's say you're telling the truth and this is the party. I could eat all the cake and it wouldn't matter. Uh, well, uh, not all the cake. We don't have to go crazy now, do we? Oh, happy 100, Jeff. Uh, you have more cake, yes? Well, if law and on cake, I could head back to the swamp and make more cake. We can always have more cake. Donkey, why'd you go help me with the cake? Oh, Shrek, no one wants swamp cake. Hey, Jeff, Happy 100, by the way. This is the nicest party I've ever seen. Nicer than any party I've ever had. Even when I married my dragon, it wasn't this nice. Jeff, I have this parking ticket issue. So if you see Bogomil, would you let him know? Oh, there you are, Jeff. Happy 100. I got you a canoe. You know, in case you and Ronnie want to go canoeing, you know, get wet, splash about. Hey, Jeff. Happy 100. I love the Mars theme party. It's so surreal. I can't tell if it's real or fantasy. There's a girl over there. I believe she has three boobs. That just makes me wish I had three hands. I don't even know. It's wild. All right, all right, all right. Hey, can we get some more air in here? Feels like we could do some more air. It's Cohegan. Why won't anyone believe me? Uh oh, this Kohagen fellow sounds like my kind of guy. I say, Smithers, fetch me his resume. And cocktail weenies. Mm, yes, sir, right away. Oh, yes, and congratulations, Jeff. 100 episodes. And this cake? Hey, it's made from real Swamp. I don't know what's better. Oh, hey, Jeff, there you are. Congratulations on your hundred episodes. I don't know where you might want this propane and all your propane accessories at. Oh, great. Now there's two things that smell like gas. Okay. And I've got my banjo, too, if you're ready. Hey, Jeff, your old pal Patrick Warburton here. Congratulations on your hundred episodes. Wow, you've got a lot of nerve showing your face around here, don't you? Well, Jeff, congratulations on your 100th episodes. I hope you enjoyed the ride. I have to get back to looking for Carl Hagen. So, but seriously, though, y'all, I did it. Anyone else need more air? I feel like we could use a little more air.
1: I'll look into the air. Thank you all for coming. This is such a surprise. Great to see all of you again. I'll be back in a little bit. Oh, wow, that was a shock. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> whoever put that together. Love it. Thank you. It's always great when people come together to celebrate you. And this is our 100th. Can you believe it? And now it's time for the social media tip. All right. This is the part of the show where I share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you. I've been in the social media game my whole career. And I believe realizing the tide helps us all. So a lot of people were asking me, Jeff, what is this Twitter for business professionals? Should I do it? And I was like, I don't know, I'll look into it. So I looked into it. One cool thing about it is in your profile at the very top, you can choose like a category. So like on my podcast, now it says podcast. So you know, it's a podcast. On my Big Macher Twitter account, it says social media influencer, if I may say so myself. Other than that, I'm not sure there's a huge benefit other than on desktop, it adds a big promote button to every one of your posts. So really Twitter business for, professionals it seems it's just a great way to get you to advertise more if that's what your thing is great it's perfect if you just want to have a cool little category in your profile then do it i did it that's all i use it for and there you have it and that's the social media tip i do want to thank everyone in advance for their support of the sponsors when you support the sponsors you're supporting us here live from detroit the jeff dewaskin show And that's how we keep the lights on. Today's interview sponsor is Omni Consumer Products Babysitter Division. Tired of having to stay home every weekend? Well, it sounds like it's time for you to hire one of our proven no-nonsense babysitters so you can enjoy a night on the town. Say goodnight to the little ones and hello to a glorious night out. Let our robo-babysitters do all the work for you. Time for you to go to bed.
0: We're never going to bed. You have
1: three seconds to comply three, two, one. Oh my God. Okay. How were the little ones? They were a delight. Don't you deserve time with your loved one? Reach out to Omni Consumer Products Babysitter Division today. Well, all right. Well, that sounds amazing. So check them out. I think it's finally time to share my conversation with Ronnie Cox with you. You're going to love it. We talk about so much. Enjoy. I'm excited to introduce my superbly talented next guest. You loved him in Deliverance. Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 2, RoboCop, Total Recall, Taps. Please welcome to the show, actor, singer, songwriter, musician, Ronnie Cox. Ronnie, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Jeff. How are you?
1: I was talking to Billy Van Zant recently, and so I, we were talking about the movie Taps. And your name came up. I had just recently re-watched the movie, which you're amazing in. And he shared a story about you that I just, I thought was so great. Billy Van Zandt, he was a bug in Taps. And he said, he told me a story that you came to him at the premiere and made a point to tell him how great he was in the movie. Because a lot of it was about Sean Penn, Tom Cruise, Timothy Hutton. I thought that was a, a very touching story kind of speaks a lot to your character. And I thought that was awesome.
2: Yeah, it, it, it was funny. You know, everybody talks about uh, Sean and Tom Cruise because it's it was both their first films. A lot of people don't realize that uh, Sean Penn, that was his first movie. And, and a lot of people think it's Fast Times at Richmond High. And a lot of people think that Tom Cruise, that he had a, both their first movies.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, it's an incredible first outing.
2: <laughs> And while we were shooting it, while we were actually in the in the shooting it in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, at Valley Forge Military Academy, Timothy Hutton won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for for ordinary people for the year before.
1: <laughs> I know that must have been that must have been a, quite a celebration then with all of you guys.
2: Yeah, I'll tell you something else you might not know about that. In many ways, George C. Scott wanted to play my character <laughs> uh, because. Because obviously the the best adult male character in the in the film is Colonel Kirby. But if you get if George C. Scott plays the Colonel, who do you get to play the General? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, he was kind of perfect for the General, coming off of
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> I think you both ended up in the in the perfect spot. Well, speaking of of the of roles, so um, Billy had mentioned to me that like Tom Cruise wasn't originally that character either. That was somebody else, and they moved Tom No, he there. was
2: not. As a matter of fact, Tom Cruise, he was sort of an extra kid. We got to King of Prussia a couple of weeks ahead of time, and they were doing drills with all of the kids. And there was another kid uh, playing tom cruise's role and during the the course of the the cadets uh, the actors doing the the drills and stuff there was one kid that was just doing it better than anybody else and it was tom cruise so they started occasionally giving him a line here and a line there and then pretty soon they just moved him into that bigger role of the role of sean yeah, Tom, I think he was only about 18 or 19 years old at that time.
1: That was young. It was, like you said, their first roles. They all crushed it. Amazing performances all around.
2: Yeah, I've done three films with Harold Becker, and, and I I just think he's a masterful director, and, and we had a good time doing uh, taps there in, in Pennsylvania.
1: I recently watched oh, how do you say this? Um, when I think of you in movies— my first the first comes to mind is uh Total Recall and Robocop, the baddie phase. I admittedly had never seen Deliverance, but I also didn't feel I could talk to you and not have seen it. So I just I just watched it. And wow, <laughs> it's a really great movie and you're incredible in it and completely different character. That's I think you refer to it as the beginning of your Boy Scout period before Paul Verhoeven got his hands on you and turned you into a baddie. But Wow, that was an amazing first film. And what an amazing cast, Ned Beatty, Burr Reynolds, John Voight.
2: Well, I don't know if you know this or not, it was Ned Beatty's first film, too.
1: Well, you both kind of nailed it out of the park. So it's And
2: we were cast totally independently of each other, and they didn't know we knew each other. and We'd been best friends for eight years and had done about 20 or 25 plays together. And so Ned and I... Ned and I were best friends from, we met in 1963 at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. And and I don't know if you know this or not, you know that originally they wanted to the cast deliverance with pretty much all unknown actors or relatively beginning actors. And I was the first actor they found. They tested me out here in California. I was living in New York, but they moved me out to California. And then a couple of weeks later, they've. Tested Ned in New York, and because generally in the films like this, you know, you cast the two guys above the title before you cast the two guys below the title. They found me first, and then they found Ned, and then we waited around two or three or four more weeks for them to decide on John Voight and Burt Reynolds for the other two roles. So that 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 never happened before. And like you said, Drew, my character was this sensitive, nice guy. And in many ways, I can tell you, because you said that Paul Verhoeven, you always seen me as a bad guy. Well, for about 15 years after Deliverance came out, or 12 or 15 years, I got cast as only Mr. Nice Guy, because my character was, was the sensitive one, and, and that gets equated with weak out here in California, or did back in those days. And so for me... I never got those bad guy roles, those roles that are so much fun to play because I was considered what's called <laughs> a soft actor. You know, the, the sensitive, if you played soft and, and sensitive, you weren't. And in many ways, Paul Verhoeven cast me as Dick Jones in RoboCop because he wanted to trade on that residual good, because I'd been playing all these boy scout nice guys up until then and he wanted people to think when dick jones came on the screen that the audience would say oh here's a nice guy and then when he turned out to be <laughs> evil and bad made him twice as bad and i think that's a brilliance of paul verhoven finding that a way to turn that through as well on people
1: that is uh, a masterclass in understanding personalities and how the audience is going to react.
2: Exactly.
1: I'm embarrassed to tell you, I, I really wanted to talk to you because I love your work. And like, but again, those were stuck in my head. And I was like, I was nervous. I was like, oh, I, I hope I can talk to Ronnie. I mean, it's like, <laughs> he's, so, he's so, you know, he's authoritative and strong. And um, but then I started to do the research. And I'm like, oh my God, Ronnie Cox is like the nicest guy in the world. And so- <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's a myth, but... <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you're not Dick Jones. <laughs> okay, so, all right, so uh, Deliverance, this it sort of ties into a little bit of your music, which we can thread throughout and, and kind of end with, because I, I love that you kind of followed your passion into music. You were hired on Deliverance, partly because of your ability to play guitar. Yeah, I, I, now, don't get
2: me wrong, I'm not a bluegrass figure, but, but I was. I put myself through through high school and college with a rock and roll band and i was cutting records see i grew up in new mexico and in portales and, and 19 miles north of portales is clovis and I, so that's where uh, norman petty studios were and are and I, I was actually around that's where buddy holly i was there when they when buddy holly cut puggy sue and there were other so i was cutting records in high school So, yeah, I I play the guitar, and one of the reasons I was hired for the piece was because I was at home with the guitar in my hand. Now, don't get me wrong, I didn't play that piece, because you see the kid, Billy Redden, couldn't play the banjo that's not even his left hand in the picture we we got another kid that knows something about the banjo because billy didn't even know how to hold the banjo and so we had to do what's and i'm sure you must know this about matching the playback eric weisberg and steve mandel pre-recorded the song they went to atlanta and recorded the song and then when we were filming the scene, they would slate the camera. And then once they called action, they would turn on the thing. And then Billy and I would hopefully match the playback. Since Billy didn't even know enough about the banjo to play it, John Borman wanted to be able to cut to someone's fingers playing the right notes. And so Steve Mandel, who was the, the actual guitarist, taught it to me note for note. So if you back go back and look at the film, I matched the, the guitarist playing it. I'm playing the absolute right notes. It's just that i did I play it? Yes. Is that me on the soundtrack? No. And did it cost me about a million dollars? Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, because if you right, because you would have been on the soundtrack. Now I speaking of which I read, I I like to look at for some random trivia of stuff, that dueling bandros composed by Arthur Smith. The, the song was originally put on the soundtrack without his permission.
2: Well, yeah, see, for years, Warner Brothers, in the original credits, it said, dueling banjos was a traditional tune arranged by eric weisberg and steve mandel and they didn't want to play pay royalties now arthur guitar boogie smith wrote that piece and he called up warner bros hey that's my song he had to take him to court and it took him five or six years to work out and so if you see the new versions of the credits it now it credits him but the original credits The original title of the piece is Feuding Banjos, and it was played by two banjos at a folk festival, a four-string banjo versus a five-string banjo. And these two guys traded licks back, and a group called the Dillards had recorded it ahead of that time, too. So you can see why Warner Brothers thought that maybe it was a traditional song, but Arthur Smith wrote the song.
1: Well I gotta say it's it looks like you're playing it. They did a great job editing and I went back I did I did in my research learn about the left hand being uh, not Billy Redden's left hand. can't really tell in re-watching it. what kind of goes through your mind or what how do you feel about being part of especially since it was like one of the very first scenes of the movie of your first movie to be in one of the most iconic <laughs> scenes of like any movie?
2: Well, here's the thing that you got to know, not only was that my first film, that was my first time in front of a camera and we shot the film in sequence. So that was the very first scene we shot. So the, my introduction I knew nothing about filming. I've been a stage actor all those years. And, and so it was unreal in in many ways, and especially then going through the the motions of technically matching a playback because matching a playback you you have to sort of exactly play so so you end up playing the piece it's just they're not recording you. And so My first acting job, my first musician's job. I mean, there was a a lot going on there for a a guy just breaking into movies. Yeah, that's
1: unreal. First film, first scene. And it it ends up being one of the most iconic moments in, in movie history. Kudos to you. I would imagine most people want to hide their first stuff that they did.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, and not only that, when the film came out, no one thought that Dueling Banjos was going to become a big hit song. So there wasn't even a record available. When the film came out, they actually played the scene from Deliverance, the Dueling Banjo scene from Deliverance, twice on the Ed Sullivan show as a variety act, because there was no one around to go and play it. There wasn't a record.
1: That's incredible. So uh, a couple of questions on Deliverance as well, it being your first movie. One is i watched the movie and i'm thinking to myself wow it's it's amazing that ronnie cox even wanted to be in movies again after having to spend all that time in a canoe in that water (laughs) that must have been an insane shoot and then uh, as a follow-up question to that that thing with your arm
2: well the, the things about the canoes we did all the canoeing ourselves there are no stuntmen in that so so we did all that and my arm coming out of place See, the original concept that John Borman had in mind was when they were going to, after Drew was killed, when they find Drew, John's idea was that that they were going to find Drew face up in the water with his eyes open. And so I was being fitted with false eyeballs so that it could look like my eyes were open under the water there. And while I was being fitted for that, I said to John Borman, I said, John, you know, I can do a sort of weird thing with my shoulders. And he said, well, let me see. And I see my I had polio when I was young and my shoulders come out of place. That's actually my arms. That's like that. Everybody thinks it's fake, but it's not. It's actually me. I'm old now and I can't do it as well. But in those days, I could do it at will. And so I showed John that And he just fell down He just thought that was the greatest thing The way, the best way to find Drew <laughs> And I can tell you notice, Mike Hancock, he was a makeup artist And that was one of his very first films Now, Mike went on to have a big career He was Morgan Freeman's makeup artist for years But they'd hired a young guy There was very little for makeup artists to do So all Mike Hancock had to do Was put some blue makeup on where it looked like my shoulder was bruised, come out of place. And so when the film came out, everybody thought that he had done some sort of fantastic prosthetic or something to make it look like that. And everybody would come to him and say, oh, Mike, how did you do that? And he
1: said, oh, trade secret, I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to win the Academy Award for... Uh, <laughs> and then you're like, no, it was me. <laughs> I got to say, finding you that way in the movie, it was so impactful. I mean, like, I find you all twisted like that, it seems so real.
2: And another thing that sort of paid off, I, I read a sort of learned Tracy's uh, review of the film, and when the guy picked up on this and I think that sort of subliminally got through is dueling banjos that the guitar hand was yet they find the guitar neck broken and they find Drew's arm so sort of thematically it just sort of tied everything together it ended up being a a sort of I don't know an important image
1: (laughs) oh yeah it's it it stuck with me I I thought it was it made them finding you Just so powerful. Like, it added so much versus just if you were just floating there against the log or something like that. Yeah. So Burt Reynolds, Burt's like big on TV at this point, but this is also not as far, this is what launched him as well.
2: Burt, back in those days, it's not so much these days, but in those days, if you were a TV actor, you were a two or three cuts below a film actor. And see, Burt had been in television. He'd been on Gunsmoke and he did a Dan August and Riverboat, a couple of things like that. But he was he was kind of known as a TV actor. And I got to tell you, every every actor in, in the world wanted those four roles. And so it was a big feather in his calf that Bert got that role. But three things happened that year that sort of launched Bert. Because like I said, Bert was known as a TV actor. But he did Deliverance and people realized, holy, this guy is really a good actor. This is a great actor. And Burt Reynolds went on The Tonight Show for the first time and people realized how funny he was. And he did the centerfold. And those three things that year just sort of pushed him and he became number one box office in the world right after that.
1: For a long time. Yeah, it's it's always amazing just to kind of. See how all the dots connect. I know you. You said you were great friends with Ned Betty. I know. I know you worked again with him in Captain America in 1990. Did you do anything else with him?
2: Yeah, we worked together in Grey Lady Down too. We did the Bell Telephone Hour production of Our Town, which won the Peabody Award together with Hal Holbrook. Ned and I, like I said, he was my best friend from sixty-three on. You know, he died a year or so ago. But Ned and I have remained really close friends throughout our lives.
1: That's great. That's it's such a it's a nice story. And it, it's it's great when you have someone that you can kind of experience everything you guys were both experiencing uh, in Hollywood. All right, so you were president in Captain America. You were also president in Murder at Sixteen Hundred, where you got to punch Alan Alda. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I I was also president in Martians Go Home, and I was also ended up president. I think I ended up being president on Stargate. I've played the president about four or five times.
1: Fabulous president and captain of the Enterprise D. When uh, in Star Trek, The Next Generation.
2: Well, Captain Jellico saved their ass on there, if you want to know the truth. They made Troy put on a uniform, for God's sake, and brought a little discipline to that ship.
1: Yeah, you were strict. That crew didn't love you. <laughs> but uh, but what are you going to do? The card was captured by the Kardashians. What well, are you going to do?
2: You know, Ashley, he served Captain Jellicoe. I don't know if you know this or not, but those two episodes, the chain of command of the names that are those two episodes titles and they're the two highest rated in viewership of the, all the star trek next generation and people love to hate Jellico, but Jellico he served a number of really good functions for that show for instance troy i mean she didn't want to wear that getting her out of that making her wear a uniform was at her request and also they didn't like internal conflict on the show. So they never could have other characters bickering back and forth with each other. And so by me taking on Riker, they could deal with that. And then one of my favorite things, I don't know if you know this or not, Jellicoe made them take the fish out of the ready room. And that was a direct perk for Patrick Stewart because Patrick Stewart had always objected. To the fish being in the ready room, he had said, "Look, we're doing a, a series about the honoring the species of, of all the known universe, and we've got captive fish in a ready room. That's anathema to what we should be standing for." But the producers love production value of, of being able to shoot through those through the tank, so they didn't. Want. So when Jellico came on and said, "Get those fish out there," that was a perk for Patrick.
1: Well, well done. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, So did you get a lot of letters for that? Like, did people, uh, (laughs) the fandom?
2: Uh, No, the most letters I ever got vilifying me. I got more hate mail. From Cohagen kicking over the fish tank in total recall.
1: Well, yeah, because you got a thing against fish, it it seems. And the people were just, they, the people were, we're done with this.
2: And the thing is, we didn't lose a single fish. We had a, a catch that. So when I kicked over that thing, I kicked him into another tank. And, <laughs> and we didn't lose a single fish. But boy, did I get mayo. Killing people, depriving them of air was not nearly as bad as kicking over <laughs> the fish tank.
1: Yeah, I mean, your friends have you over, like hide the fish. Ronnie's coming over. <laughs> it's got a thing. You've done so many things. Let's talk about Beverly Hills Cop one and two with Eddie, working with Eddie Murphy, uh, Detroit's own Axel Foley. <laughs>
2: well, I've done three films with Eddie. I also did uh, a little thing called Imagine That with him, and I, I love working with Eddie. I didn't. I hate. I didn't want to do Cop Two. I hate sequels, and the only reason I did Cop Two was because. Bogomil getting shot was the reason for Eddie's character coming back to Beverly Hills. And they offered me cop three, and I turned it down. I say this as a joke, but it's not. Sequels to me are a little like putting on a wet bathing suit.
1: I understand that.
2: I hate this Robocop 2. I hate the me remake of Total Re- I hate all of those films. Yeah, I just think they're dreadful.
1: I have not seen any of the remakes of Total Recall or Robocop. I, I don't understand why, when you have something that was made that's so classic in the first place. yeah.
2: Well they wanted me for RoboCop 2. They called me up and they said, "Ronnie, we're doing RoboCop 2." And I said, "So yeah." And they said, Do "You want to be in that? And they said, "I said, "Don't you realize I just got shot out of a 40-story window?" And, uh, and they said, "No, no, no. We fixed up RoboCop. How about if we fix up Dick Jones and we we'll make him a RoboVillain?"
1: <laughs> Sounds like the, the one of the uh, one of the better decisions in your acting <laughs> career <laughs> not taking RoboCop 2. Oh man. It's, it's a rare. I, I mean, I can think of Godfather 2 as being a good sequel, but the it's rare that the sequels are good. Um, it's, it's, it always kind of ruins the first ones.
2: About the only one that I can think of where I like the second one better than the first one. And the, I like the first one. I love the Godfather 2 a lot.
1: Godfather 2 is great. Did you see Godfather 2 before Godfather 1? Or did you see him in R?
2: No, no, I, I, no, no, I, I saw, we were in competition with Godfather 1 for uh, deliverance. The reason we didn't win anything for deliverance was because that was the same year as the Godfather.
1: Ah, oh, okay, all right, timing. So
2: I, I saw Godfather when it came out, but I, but then I saw Godfather 2, and Godfather 2 is fabulous. Now, Godfather 3, we won't talk about, but, uh, there you have
1: it. They kind of retooled Godfather 3 recently. I haven't I haven't seen it. But I agree with you. 1 and 2, I think they both won the best Oscar, too. But yeah, 1 and 2, those are two of the best, best movies in general. But yeah, in terms of sequel, I hate when they try to make comedy sequels. Those never work.
2: I don't see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, sometimes you hope, you know. <laughs> like, maybe Wayne's World 2 will be as funny as Wayne's World. Anyway, all right, so you hate sequels. So I, I guess I won't ask you if you're going to be in the new Beverly Hills Cop 4 on Netflix. You kind of answered that. No, I
2: am not. <laughs> when I was doing Imagine That, the the producer on, on that had the rights to Beverly Hills Cop Ford and asked me to do it, it then and i said no does the term fat chance sweetheart mean anything <laughs> <to> you?
1: <laughs> you gotta keep the classic things alive it's just if unless it's like so great it just it ruins i think the original ones make it makes you not enjoy them as much or go back to them as often all right so working with eddie murphy was awesome you worked with richard pryor and some kind of hero
2: oh i loved work richard pryor and i became really 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 good close friends I he was one of my closest friends other than Ned Beatty maybe my closest other acting friend in the business was Richard Pryor uh, what a fabulous and and you know the, the film we did was the one he did immediately after he had almost burned himself up and he was in a really kind of fragile state during the, it was called some kind of hero with Margot Kidder was in it as well I really loved doing that, and and I did that film immediately before I did Taps, because I remember we did a thing, I don't know if you know, you know, oftentimes when they shoot telephone scenes, they shoot one side, they shot my side of a, of a telephone conversation with Richard's character, and I was in my office, and we shot my side, but we had not shot his side by the time I finished my work on there. So we still had not shot his side of that scene. And so I went off to King of Prussia to do taps. And I don't know if you know this or not, the worst thing to do, if the other actor is not there, the actor is having to say the lines and they're having the lines, the feed lines are, are fed to him via the script supervisor. And there's nothing worse than acting with a script supervisor that's there. So when it came time to do Richard's side of the scene. They set that up and then they called me in King of Prussia and I got on the phone and I played all of the scene with Richard on the other end of the phone. And I don't know that that's ever happened before or since, but it was really satisfying for me to be able to do that for Richard.
1: That's awesome. It seems that it would create a better performance also. Yeah. I read on your webpage you had a blog about kind of about the movie Some Kind of Hero. And you mentioned that when Richard Pryor met you, he told you that he, had, he admired you as an actor.
2: Yeah, it was kind of embarrassing because, see, that was the thing with Richard. Some kind of hero, like I said, he was fragile during that time, and some kind of hero had a lot of sort of dramatic stuff, and so he's obviously the king of comedy, but he was a little nervous, and so he was nervous, of all things, about working with me. <laughs> and and it was kind of embarrassing for me. But here's this, the most fabulous actor in the world being nervous about working with me it was it was kind of like i said it's kind of embarrassing
1: but it also has to feel kind of good that like this icon looks at you in such a way i know then you converted that into a friendship and, and that probably all leveled out but the uh but in the beginning they're like just to find out that oh this person thought so much of me it has gotta it's gotta it's gotta hit you inside a little bit
2: yeah, it does. Well, that apropos of that, I don't. It, and this was equally embarrassing. I don't know if you know. You know, Patrick Stewart's big breakthrough role was Excalibur, which was directed by John Borman. What I didn't realize is that one of Patrick Stewart's favorite movies in the world was Deliverance. So when I got the that role of Captain Jellico on Star Trek. The first day I showed up to work, here's Patrick Stewart, and he comes in, and Patrick Stewart sort of stops and said, and he started shouting to all the crew guys, "I'm working with Ronnie Cox. I'm working with Ronnie Cox. I'm working." It was, it was, totally embarrassing that he was he was going off about him being an, getting to work with me. I, go figure that out.
1: <laughs> I think that's awesome. It's it's fun. It's got to be touching to find out that you touched somebody like that where, and especially someone that you probably admire, you know, as an actor and, and think highly of that, they already thought that of you as you walked in the door. I think, I think that's awesome.
2: Yeah, Well, it was, it was pretty embarrassing. No, know,
1: but- I, I understand it. The humility, you're being, uh, the humility of it, but like, uh, but it's, it's cool that to know on the, on the higher level that you, you touched someone with your work yeah. and, and that they appreciated you so much. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. I know we, we touched on RoboCop and then uh, the other movie you did with uh, Paul Verhoeven, Total Recall, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes. How was working with uh, Arnie? <laughs>
2: it, it was actually kind of good. We ended up getting along really well. Now, Arnold is a bit of a bully. But I I don't think necessarily on purpose. See, Arnold came up in that whole sort of macho, bodybuilder, Mr. And sort of the the way you get by in that business was dominating people. And so Arnold's way of dealing with people was to sort of be intimidating to them. By being intimidating, that's just how he was. He really kind of bullied some people. And I knew that that was never going to be... Work for me as an actor, if I'm playing Cohagen, that I'm going to be kowtowing to this guy that's my underling. And so I knew that I had to sort of establish some sort of territory from the beginning. And so from the first time we met, I, Arnold, this is Ronnie, Ronnie, this is Arnold. And he had on a pair of really garish shorts, and I, uh, and I said, Oh, Arnold, I, I love your shorts. And he said, Oh, you love my shorts. And I said, Yeah. And he said, How come you love my shorts? And I said, I wish I had two pair of them. And he said, Two pair. I said, Yeah, one to crap on one to cover it up with. <laughs> and and so, so there was this moment. And then he thought it was funny. And so from that moment on, we had a sort of relationship that was based on a sort of mutual put down. He made fun of me playing dueling banjos, and I'm a big star. I play the banjo. Da, da, da. And, and so I, and we had this relationship that was sort of based on, like I said, mutual put down, and we got along really well. He got a little mad at me. I don't know. You know, when he was elected governor of California, I went on the Jon Stewart show because he wanted to talk to me about. And I was trying to make a joke. Jon Stewart asked me, said, how was working with Arnold? And I said, well, in total recall, you know, I taught Arnold everything he knows about governing. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) and 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 so. um, Arnold didn't think that was so funny, so.
1: <laughs> well, I think it's funny. Well played, sir. Well played. So, And then I read that you we mentioned Captain America earlier, but you were doing that at the same time as Total Recall, and you were like flying all over the world doing both.
2: Yeah, was, we were shooting Captain America in Yugoslavia, and we were shooting Total Recall in Mexico City. So I was flying back and forth between the two.
1: Do you watch any of the new Captain America movies?
2: I I have, you know, I got to tell you the truth about that Captain America movie. That Captain America movie that we shot in Yugoslavia, it's practically unwatchable, I think. But it was one of the most brilliant scripts I have ever read. Tolkien's script, it was fabulous. And unfortunately, and I'm not going to name his name, but the director just sort of missed the point. Of that film, and it could have been the iconic action film hero of all time. We just missed because it's. It took it like two years to even go to video, and it had good people in it. I mean, it had Melinda Dillon, Ned Beatty, Darren McGavin. It had some really good people in that film.
1: I remember seeing it. I remember seeing it um, probably when it came out as a kid. I loved all those things though because I I was so into like superheroes and stuff.
2: We shot in Dubrovnik at that time Yugoslavia, and it was great fun to be there.
1: The other interesting item on your, one, one other interesting item on your IMDb is cop rock, which I mentioned also because I, I read that this was sort of where you started pivoting and deciding to kind of go more in the direction of music.
2: Absolutely, I, I'll tell you the truth, and you can check with any of the guys, people that were on cop rock, from Bochco to, to all the actors, everybody that's worked on that film, uh, th- that may be the most enjoyable show I've ever worked on in my life. Now, it failed miserably because it was 20 years ahead of its time. But who heard in 1990 who heard of cops all of a sudden breaking into song and stuff? But the music was all composed by Randy Newman, and we did five live songs every week on the show you know there were 13 or 14 of us that were regulars and so no one works every day it's the only project i was ever in where i went to work every day whether i was called or not because i it was so fascinating and while we were doing that series i realized how much i missed the music in my life When it closed, I turned down all acting work for a couple of years and went to Nashville and managed to get a record deal at Mercury Records. And I did a record there. It got really, I won't go into it too much. It got really great reviews, but sold maybe four copies. (laughs) I mean, I'm not a country artist. I'm really more of a folk artist. It took me another two, four, five years to find the folk music community, but that's what got me back into music. I made a decision about, oh, 10 or 12 years ago that I wouldn't let any movie or television show interfere with any music gig that I already had booked. Now, Don't get me wrong. I don't like playing big. I'm a singer, songwriter, storyteller. And so I like smaller, more intimate venues. And that's what I seek out. And so I'm not in it to make big money or to be big stardom. What I, this, see if I can explain this. I love acting and I'm good at it, but I love the music a little bit more. And I can tell you why. With acting, No matter what kind it is, movies, television, plays, you name it, there is and must be that imaginary fourth wall between you and the audience. You can't step through the camera and talk and and interact. Even if you're doing a play, you have to stay within the confines of the character and the play. Whereas the kind of show I do, it doesn't always happen, but the, the kind of show that I'm interested in doing is there is a profound possibility of a profound one-on-one sharing that can take place i want my show to feel like it used to be when we were kids in the living room or the front porch or just sharing songs and stories and stuff with our friends and so because of that i don't like to play venues more than three or four hundred five hundred people at the most and i've played sometimes i play house concerts i only have 40 or 50 or 60 people And so what I do, let's say it's an audience of 500 people. As soon as they open the doors, I go out and I meet with the people. And I want to have as much personal contact with the people before the show starts. So that by the time the show starts, there's already a sort of rapport that I have
1: with the audience.
2: And I got to tell you, that is an opiate it is undeniable
1: i can relate I, I do stand-up comedy so i i kind of understand on the level of you get up there you have your songs you've written i have my jokes and i'm gonna do but there's sometimes just things that happen in that moment or you you connect with someone or something happens and it's just y- yeah. the most amazing this is never going to happen again moment and it just makes it so special
2: Well, and I can tell you another aspect of that, and I I, I give seminars sometimes at Folk Alliance concerts about this, of encouraging people that do the smaller venues like me to do this. Because, you know, we all need to to prepare ourselves to do the show, warm up and do all that kind of stuff. Now, I do that. I just do it earlier than that because I'm there. As soon as they open the doors, I'm there meeting the people. And so when people come in, the people that, that closet, there are certain other people that closet themselves away. Those artists closet and they come out, and whether they want to admit it or not, they're relegating themselves to starting with second-rate material because they're coming out. The audience is a stranger to them. They're a stranger to the audience. They're not about to do their best stuff until they get the audience warmed up. Now, don't get me wrong. Their second-rate material may be better than my first-rate material, but... I can start with whatever I want to because I've already established that relationship.
1: I understand that. It it makes perfect sense. Exactly. It's like sometimes like if I come out on stage, comedians, do they'll come on stage and they can reference something that just happened and then there's that moment where you know that they just were referencing either the previous comedian or something that happened in the audience, and you they connect that fast, and then they go into it, you've sped up how fast they're going to become part of the yeah. show. Yeah,
2: well, and, and as you know, too, that if, if something screws up and, and you somehow own that, because rather than turning the audience off, it endears you to the audience, because it makes it, they know they're in on something that happened, that this is not part of it. I'm a big believer in owning your mistakes.
1: I remember I was doing, a, uh, I think it was a comedy contest once, and the person that went before me, it was just, I mean, the the act, I can't even explain it. It was just horrible, horrible. I come out and I made a one-line comment that I prepared <laughs> uh, in reference to that person, and it got such a laugh. Ronnie, it was the biggest laugh I've ever gotten, but in my head, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I just screwed myself. Nothing I've got coming next is as funny. <laughs>
2: Well, I say revel in those moments and don't worry about not being able to capture
1: it again. I agree. I agree. That's
2: sort of my philosophy of, because for me, less is always more. The simpler you can do anything in acting, the simpler it is, the better it is.
1: I agree with that. I agree 100%. I was chilling to one of your albums yesterday. I think it's your most recent one, Live at the Kitchen Sink. Really good. I I enjoy your voice. It's really... It's really nice to to listen to your your singing. I was checking you out on Spotify.
2: Uh, I'm proud of that. That's a live album. No overdubs. No retakes. No nothing. I mean, that's a totally live album.
1: The night John Houston died. I enjoyed that one a lot. Did you know him, or did it was he?
2: Yeah. If you go to my website, you can also look see that that live album live at the kitchen sink. There's also stories that go with all. We recorded the whole thing. So you can listen to the story of John. I was the reason I became an actor is because of John Houston. I encourage you to go to, to my website, RonnieCost.com, and it which talks about Live at the Kitchen Sink, that there's a place there where you can listen to the stories from Live at the Kitchen Sink.
1: All right. I will check I will check that out. I would love to supplement yeah. that experience. Is there anywhere else people can keep up with you? Are you on any of the other socials? Nah, I'm gone. <laughs> All right, so the best way to keep up with Ronnie Cox is RonnieCox.com. Cool. I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. This was so fun. Delighted. Thanks, Jeff. How amazing was Ronnie Cox, huh? It was worth waiting 100 episodes, wasn't it? If you haven't seen one of Ronnie's movies in a while, go treat yourself. If this was the first time you heard about Ronnie being a musician, head over to one of the music streaming services and treat your ears to a little Ronnie Cox music. As the interview is now over, it can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for a trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free, costs you nothing, Hashtag Roundup app at the iTunes or Google Play Store. Get notified every time a hashtag game starts. Tweet with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Duoskin Show. Fame and fortune await you. This week's hashtag, keeping with the theme of the episode, is Fake Robocop Facts. That's right, from the Fake Facts game on Hashtag Roundup comes Hashtag Fake Robocop Facts. Your ultimate source for non reliable information on Robocop. I'm going to read the tweets. They're all retweeted at Jeff Show on Twitter. Go check them out, retweet them, show them some love. All right, here we go. Hashtag fake Robocop facts. He's based on the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. He was designed and built by Anakin Skywalker when he was six. I'm a person. My name is Anakin, and I built Robocop. At night, he's a robo telemarketer. Ugh. RoboCop will block you if you DM him about his extended warranty. Taylor Swift's 10-minute version of All Too Well was written for RoboCop. He'd buy that for a dollar, but there are supply chain issues. These are some great hashtag fake RoboCop facts. Here's some more. He's best friends with the Terminator. I'll be back. He has an estranged son who became a vending machine in Portland. Pepper Potts started dating him on the rebound from Iron Man. He's been known to slide into Rosie the Robot's DM on more than one occasion. Oh, thank God these have been tagged. Hashtag fake Robocop facts. I wouldn't want him coming after us. He's a member of the Underground Fight Club named Rock'em Sock'em Robocops. Dick Jones fell in love with Alex Murphy's wife and had Murphy killed so they could be together. I'd buy that for a dollar. And the final hashtag fake Robocop fact. His spare job is telling people about auto warranties. Oh! All right. Again, those are all retweeted at Jeff Jawaskin Show. Tweet your own, tag us. Loved for you to play along. Can't believe we're at the end of another episode. Oh my gosh, a hundred episodes. Can you believe it? Thanks for celebrating with me. Thanks for being here week after week. Can't thank you enough. I'm going to head back to the party. Feel free to join me. And if not, I'll see you next time. Hey, everyone, I'm back. Oh, and if you don't like the canoe, I got you a hundred goldfish. But
0: I heard Ronnie doesn't like goldfish. Would that be a problem? Uh, those were appetizers? Oh, my. I guess I got you 57 goldfish thanks to the fat man. Uh, had I known. You have to keep the fish away from Cohagen. If he touches the fish again, I'm writing a stern letter. Hey, all I'm saying is seriously like a little more air, y'all. Can we just get a little more air? Jeff, you got an extra window you could crack, man? Just, just a little more air. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwaskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwaskin. Now go repeat everything you've heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at the thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.